0: The Cozy
1: Robot Show. Hey, Cozy Robots, I'm Mike McCarg,
0: And I'm Grace Vaughn.
1: Welcome to The Cozy Robot Show, a program about empathetic skepticism, learning to be in touch with our feelings and learn what our feelings are telling us, and learning about other people's feelings and learning how to think critically about our world, our governments, our media, our societies. All that stuff. And the Cozy Robot Show, you may or may not know, is made by a company called Quantum Spin Studios, which I work for and Grace works for. And we as a company care a lot about doing work in a way that centers the needs of human people because that does all our work. We don't employ any AI supercomputers or anything like that.
0: As far as you know. And that
1: means we... As far as I know, beep, boop, boop, in fact, beep, I may boop, be a boop. machine and unaware of it.
0: <laughs> we're all we'll we're all little uh, cozy robots. Anyway, continue. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> I just uh, I just wanted to say in the values we have as a company, I'm happy about two things. Number one, Grace, you took last week off. Yeah. And number two, that you're back this week because I really missed you. Oh, I like doing the show with you.
0: I missed you as well, and I. I really do so enjoy the show and the way I said that sounded like a robot talking. And I do I as enjoy well enjoy this the with show. You, Mike.
1: It is very enjoyable. <laughs>
0: it is wonderful. Um, no, I, I truly do. I really missed it and I missed seeing all the comments um, p- streaming in. Just a reminder, everybody, that we are live. And so, if you have any questions about tonight's episode, is about books. Um, as I tweeted earlier today, we're getting literary, and we are, um, and we are, uh, cracking open spines and, uh, that sounds a little scary and forceful, but I'm talking about books. <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: we are cracking open,
0: open spines. <laughs> um, but in anyway, world. in a world before the show started, everybody, Mike and I were practicing our um, movie voiceover voices, (laughs) because we are adults.
1: (laughs) Yes, we are good at adulting.
0: We are good at adulting. (laughs) We are exceptional at adulting. And we were just over and over going in a world. And that is literally what we were doing before the show started. (laughs) It's
1: accurate. It's
0: accurate.
1: (laughs) For those of you, we're doing books tonight. For those of you listening in podcast land, can I just tell you something? I'm happy you're listening in podcast land. I really am. So many people listen in podcast land. But if you ever are like, how do I get my question on the program? Just remember, we record in front of a live internet audience every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific. 8 p.m. Eastern. You can join us by going to CozyRobots.com slash watch, and then whatever you say while we're recording, we see and we can respond to. So if you've ever wanted to be a part of the show, the easiest way to do that is join us for the live filming on Monday nights. But of course, if you want to listen (laughs) later on Instagram TV or YouTube or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or all those kind of places, that's fine too
0: uh for instance you know uh mike's right we can read your comments priscilla canada says beep beep boop so we do have a actual cozy robot in the audience tonight very exciting
1: i just might start greeting priscilla every week just i'll just start the show hey cozy robots and especially priscilla
0: and especially (laughs) priscilla um if you are if you tune in live with us you know priscilla is is One of the people who greets us first, usually the first comment of the night, and we talk about it after the show. We're like, ah, and Priscilla was there. (laughs) It's lovely. It literally
1: brings a smile to our faces.
0: Truly. Absolutely. Um, So, Mike, tonight's episode is about books, and Mm. it brings me to a nostalgic place of one of the first books I ever read. Do you remember the first, well, probably not the first book you ever read, or maybe you do remember, but one of the books that I remember reading that I loved was The Big Red Barn. It was this little children's book and it kind of fueled my love for reading as I got older. Any books um, that you liked when you were younger that like, what was like a classic you went to the book uh, shelf. It doesn't have to be uh, a children's children's book. It could be YA or whatever. Any any book comes coming to mind.
1: I do remember the Big Red Barn is a book I read to my children when they were babies. <laughs> <laughs> um.
0: There you I'm
1: go. Um, <laughs> I have a weird thing. Uh, you know, I'm an avid reader, obviously. I think most people there who follow go. my work know I read uh, very quickly and very copiously. I read a lot he, of
0: books. At, really quick before, Mike, you continue. Mike reads fast. He just <laughs> said he reads quickly. He, he glossed over it. It is incredible. <laughs> I just I have to take a moment to uh, let you all know it is it is. It's a very, very cool thing. Continue, Mike.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I read fast, but there's a strange thing about how my memory works. So if you ask me about uh, a character in a book, mm. then the whole book comes rushing into my mind. If you ask me about a subject I've read about, then everything I've read in any book ever comes rushing to my mind all at once. Wow. But when I get asked... What is a book you've read or liked? Which and the the difference there uh, is between aided and unaided awareness. My aided awareness is pretty incredible. Yeah, <laughs> like uh, you know, it's, I kind of built a career around it, and my unaided awareness is equally incredible in the opposite direction. So, like, <laughs> literally, if you're like, hey, what's a what's a book you like? I'm like. I don't think I've ever read a book (laughs) because I can't think of a single one. So you're like, you know, what's a book you liked as a child? I'm like, my brain just goes, nothing. But when you said The Big Red Barn, (laughs) like I can remember like the pages in The Big Red Barn. So it's just a strange strange quirk of how okay
0: well what's well um well two things first of all people in the comments are saying lovely things like the pokey little puppy aaron hill says the pokey little puppy was uh, a favorite um allison says harry potter a classic um dakota says i love and i
1: love trans people and uh, yes let's make that, let's really clear. Make that very I clear like harry potter i also want to say i love trans people and think they have an inherent right to exist and that their identity is valid there you go sorry
0: um and, and no and no, no apologies turfy the- no
1: turfy cozy robotness
0: yeah absolutely not it not uh not allowed here um so the so uh, keep commenting in the comments everybody it's it's awesome to see you guys engage with us as we do our live show and um I, it kind of uh along the lines of what you were saying mike you you might not be able to come i'm the i'm the same way when it comes to movies for some reason if someone's like what's your favorite movie i have a stock answer from when i was when i was a teenager and i first saw lord of the rings i have a stock answer of lord of the rings mm. but i am <laughs> that could have changed. I don't know. I don't have like a, a glossary in my mind of like my mind palace, you know, of like, ah, oh, let me just go into my library or whatever. So the good news is tonight's questions are actually more about like the practice of reading and um and uh authorship, stuff like that. So uh the good news I'll, is I'll
1: I'll say it more directly. A lot of you sent in <laughs> really good questions. Yes. That were like, yes. hey, Mike what's your favorite blah, not blah, your favorite book in a given genre. or And I don't usually look at the questions before the show at all, but once that was books, I took a peek because I was worried there'd be questions like that. And I basically vetoed all the questions that required me to recall a book in a category or something like that. And then we kept it more to uh, questions that are kind of reading and literature in a macro sense, a thematic scale. As opposed thematic scale, an individual title. <laughs> well, uh, and you know, the good I, news... if anything, I've done before when people ask me books I like, I, and, and the cameras on, I do like this. Because I have to look right. at my bookshelf and start looking at spines and picking things out. Anyway,
0: I'm absolutely the same way. Um, speaking of the questions that we got tonight, let's get right into them. Let's do it. Um, so let's
1: get it started. In here.
0: <coughs> let's get it started. Okay. So at ninja underscore nichols on Twitter asks, What's up with the quirk of bibliophile psychology where I still cannot bring myself to quote-unquote deface a book by underlining or highlighting in it? These are mass-produced paperbacks, not one-of-a-kind works of arts that a scribe spent hundreds of hours to produce. Interesting question, Ninja underscore Nichols on Twitter.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to answer it. But first...
0: <laughs> for those of you listening Mike is checking out his bookshelf
1: currently I am looking for a beloved book I've read dozens of times this is good radio
0: <laughs> Mike is now standing up and he is looking through his bookshelf and right. he has come back he found so. The book. this
1: is the fabric of the cosmos by Brian Green I've read this book wow like, so many times, <laughs> and if you will look, and this is a, a book about physics, it's not light reading. So it is a book I could certainly see someone folding pages and writing notes in. And I want you to look at the cover, and the back cover, and the spine of the book. Oh, and the pages of the book. It is. I would pristine. say pristine, pristine. Um, because even when I read a book, I don't open them all the way because I don't like to stress the spine. So I just kind of partially open the book when I read. Also makes it easy to turn pages quickly. So I get nervous when guests, even close friends, pick up my books because I do too. then they like uh, they look like they're trying to murder a book because they like. I don't know. They try to open it 360 degrees. <laughs> and I never or extraordinarily rarely leave marks in books. Now, I might sometimes I buy books uh, for reference to write a book of my own. And I mark in those books and I feel this like grief, like I have, I have profaned a beautiful and sacred object. Mm. Uh, Which is to say, I have a lot of personal identification with this question. So much. It just resonates with me. And not the foggiest clue of where that (laughs) comes from psychologically. (laughs) Um, At all. And I know I definitely had a therapist talk to me one time about my thing with books. And I can't remember what she said about why. <laughs> I well, don't like to loan my books to people. I don't like to like uh, take my books to a used bookstore. They are my family. They are my friends. They are who I spend the most time with. Um, and I, I'm drawn a total <laughs> blank because I heard and not read that. And I don't remember things I hear. I only remember things. <laughs> the
0: things that you read in your I perfectly read. pristine so books. So I would
1: like to congratulate uh, our ninja friend here, right, on uh, stumping me right out of the gate.
0: Right it out of the not gate.
1: Not often I get a question that I just like. I've got nothing, but I, I have nothing.
0: Well, what other is other
1: than so... uh, uh, mad props for me
0: too? <laughs> um one one of. Oh, something that's quite interesting when I saw that question I added into the Google Doc is, um, I know that Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love, she devours books. She, her favorite books are waterlogged and have notes in them and stickies and they're all bent out of sorts. Um, from what I've seen on her Instagram, um, it could be just one book that was like that, but that's, she, um, I, I recall her saying that they're well loved and I think that it's interesting how some people have a well, like, for them is, uh, is, uh Stark.
1: Um. I think people well love <laughs> things in different ways. Um, yeah. I mean, this is my cell phone. Uh, <laughs> you can't see in Radio Land, but it looks like I just got it from an Apple Store. Um, it looks. I mean, again, I
0: just, pristine.
1: I just am really careful with my things and really particular about them. Um. And uh, and you know when people beat their phone up i don't care but like if i see people like a well loved laptop i literally am like what are you doing to that poor <laughs> poor poor digital creature? well
0: technology so, um, is it, it strikes me it strikes a different chord in me i feel like i've got to be very precious with technology uh, i'm precious with my books as well um, but but there you have it well loved different across cross boards um Speaking of, so, Mike, you just mentioned that you uh, read and process better when you read rather than hearing something. Is that I have correct? I
1: almost no memory of things I hear and almost total memory of things I read.
0: That is really fascinating. I have an auditory
1: processing deficiency. See, that's that's diagnosed, and I have severe deficiencies with... Uh, working memory, I have very little working memory or short-term memory. Oh. So my brain has compensated by uh, committing things to long-term memory much faster than most people are able to.
0: Well, that is that kind of perfectly leads us to our next question. Christian Ham on Instagram asks, Are there practical tips for the way you digest material versus reading just to get through a book?
1: Hmm. You know, I don't know how much of this is applicable or teachable to anybody. Um, I have uh, autism spectrum disorder. I've been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder by an interdisciplinary panel of professionals as required in DSM 5. Um,. And I had incredible difficulty reading as a child, like really profound difficulty. I was slow Mm -hmm. to read, uh, slow to write, and I don't read conventionally. So when they try to teach you to read, people have difficulty reading, they'll put like a sheet of paper over a text and try to have you read it a line at a time. And I can't read that way. I don't really know how to describe it. I sort of grab words out of sequence from paragraphs, and they all kind of float in my head. And then when I move my eyes to the next paragraph, the previous paragraph kind of assembles in my brain. And as that paragraph assembles in my brain, it draws connections to everything I've ever learned before. So literally, paragraph by paragraph, I... Integrate and synthesize anything new with everything else I already know and understand. And so every time I read something, I'm sort of updating my systematic model of total reality. So, <laughs> That's incredible. Um, for nonfiction resources, I'll I'll like read a thing and it'll be about a book about psychology, we don't mention that a brain structure, and then my brain will cross-reference any other book I've heard that structure in the brain mentioned and kind of go like, where are the connections? And I'll be like, oh, these two books have a thing that furthers my understanding of the thing I'm reading now, and when I read fiction, I relate everything to the meta-narrative storytelling and meaning making, and I see what moral lessons the author may have intended and the ones I may be inferring and how that could help me learn and help me to tell other people how to take moral journeys and how to how to relate to the act of being human. So everything when I read, I kind of only read, I never read to get through a book. I read to update my understanding of reality and to think and to learn how to be a better communicator to other people. And so those are always my objectives with every book. And my brain does a lot of the heavy lifting for me. It would probably surprise people to know that in the same way uh, when I read, I kind of grab pieces of a paragraph and move to the previous paragraph. My brain kind of automatically knits it together. That is also how I speak. I sort of compose um, a meta narrative outline kind of instantly in my mind and then create a sequence of bullet points. And then I can kind of almost see that pseudo visually floating in my head. And then I just like push that to the side and then my speech apparatus just generates the ta- the thoughts for me into something articulated and along that narrative. And I can kind of start thinking further along about what I'd like to talk about. When I caught my conscious experience and what I speak uh, are very disconnected from one another. And I'm often su- as surprised and amazed by what comes out of my mouth <laughs> as anyone else. Um, I love it. And so I think, uh, although that's really fun for me, Uh, I don't know if that like really helps other people think about how to read systematically. Uh, I will say that like anybody else, sometimes I do struggle with new concepts or new information. I probably struggle more than most people when reading fiction because it's very hard for me to picture characters. So when Mm. I read fiction, I have a habit of like opening, keeping a notebook or a word processor. And every time a name comes up, I'll like start to build a little profile of who this character is. And sometimes it, uh, it takes 12 or 15 mentions for me to realize, oh, I've already heard that character before. Um, and so I do a little work alongside the reading. Uh, in the same way that when I read nonfiction, there's key terms that are new to me, I'll pause my reading, I'll look up the definition, and I'll usually open maybe a, a, a spreadsheet and keep track of new concepts and little notes on how they relate to other things. Wow. And that's only like the first time I read The Fabric of the Cosmos, I really couldn't understand half of what uh, Brian Greene was talking about or certain concepts about around time and relativity um, were, were challenging. Uh, and some of the visuals were hard. And so I, I just spent more time with it, made my own notes, and and just gave myself uh, the space to explore. And I always think of it as kind of treasure hunting. Like, I'm always mm. really ex- There's nothing that gets me more excited n- n- at this point in my life than when I have a hard time reading a book. When I was younger, I'd set it down. It's too much work. But now I've learned the books that are the hardest to read are the ones that most radically shape my conception of the universe and reality and what it means to be human. Uh, And those things are very exciting to me. And I've gone from seeking that challenge primarily in cosmology and physics to seeking that uh, degree of being challenged in the work of... um, scholarship that exists at more marginalized intersections of identity than my own. There are often times that I will approach concepts that like, oh, wow, this seems really hard. I don't get it. I feel like I should give up. Um, You know, like when someone talks about abolishing the prison system, the first time I heard that, I was like, well, how could you abolish the prison system? Mm -hmm. But instead of just giving up, I said, well, this is a person. They have life experience. They have a degree. They've done relevant advocacy work. Like, I owe their work here my own work and thoughtfully digesting it, whether I end up agreeing with it or not. And um, so, I I just, I never read a book to finish it. I always read a book to be transformed by it.
0: Wow. That's really...
1: I didn't know I was going to say that 20 seconds ago.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that. well, first of all, it's amazing that we're finding that out about you just in real time as you are finding that out about you possibly. And um, it (laughs) kind of brings up something interesting. One of the questions that came in... um, Well, first of all, actually, I want to give a shout out to Nick Jackson. First time I've made it to the live show. Nice to see you, Nick. Um, We've got some other first time people in the comments. comments. Someone asked in the comments, and I'm keeping an eye on the amazing comments you guys are sending in. For instance, Allison said er, about our earlier discussion, Allison said, my therapist and I have used books to track my past since some of my most Mm. integral moments are directly tied to what book I was reading Mm. at the time. Beautiful comment. Thank you Mm -hmm. for um, throwing that into, or, um, you know, putting that into the discourse tonight um and then rob wood on um is coming from youtube and rob says paper versus ebook does it really matter any thoughts on that mike
1: oh gosh you know there's been lots of studies here and um they have advantages and disadvantages each at the end of the day. Both are perfectly valid ways to read. Both can uh, offer very high levels of retention and comprehension. Uh, they do offer subtly different cues to the brain. Um, I've gone back to buying a lot more paper books, and that is to use tactile memory in conjunction with what I'm reading. I find that when mm-hmm. I read ebooks, I don't know what book I read something in it's associated with like a kindle or an ipad whereas when i read physical books i can kind of remember like what that book felt like and what the cover looked like and it helps me bring in more of my uh my brain and body memory forms into the information cataloging and synthesizing experience um now of course you don't uh cut down trees for an ebook But based on the carbon footprint of building digital electronics and plastics, it can take many hundreds of books that are digital to offset the cost to construct a single Kindle or iPad. So it's not quite the environmental slam dunk that many people think it is. And of course, we also know that, uh, you know, forestry uh, done well is a very sustainable resource, whereas uh, plastics are a fossil fuel resource, which are not, not sustainable in the same way. Um, so when we've done studies, they don't make a huge difference in like reading comprehension scores or, um, you know, they do fine in the educational system, either form. Uh, so I think it comes down to personal, pre- pre- personal preference and maybe a little bit, um, if you're going to keep an e-reader for a long time, it can be arguably have a a lower impact on the environment if you're a heavy reader than buying paper books
0: Hmm. that's really interesting i would expect it to be the other way around but um
1: well so there's a funny thing this is people don't realize this but when when paper products um create an incentive for companies to manage land uh in a way that means there's Always, always forest growing more. on like it actually paper products increase the amount of the earth used with forestry and modern forestry practices uh, are are done and curated in such a way often that they create more habitat for wildlife so uh, now that doesn't mean it's free of environmental impact of course shipping books everywhere has a carbon footprint and other paper products mm-hmm. but um you know when when things are made of paper, paper companies plant more trees. So thirty years from now there's still more paper again. Uh, and in that way, it it is it is still an industry. It still has an environmental cost, but often a lower environmental cost than many people imagine.
0: Mike, a little bit off topic, but I do want to get to this question because it's really interesting. and you mentioned being transformed by books earlier. Sarah R Young 87 on Instagram asks, I love reading, and I find I always learn lessons better from fiction than nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Why is that?
1: Yeah, of course. That, that That's a very common experience. and It has to do with the way that our brains process fictional narratives. So when you read a story and, and this is very important, you identify with the protagonist in some way. Right. There's a reason storytellers um, try to make protagonists that are very relatable, that seem to be good people. Even antiheroes have some redeeming quality to get you to identify with them. Um, and when that happens and you start reading a story, a lot of your cognitive defense mechanisms disengage. You don't think nearly as critically reading fiction as you read nonfiction when you get swept away. It doesn't have to be a book. It can be a, a comic book it can or a graphic novel. It can be a television program. It can be a film. And um, studies have shown that when people are engaged in a story and the protagonist of the story learns something, within two weeks, most people will remember not that the protagonist learned that, but that they learned that. And
0: so this can be really
1: effective when authors include factual information in their books. But when you're writing fiction, you can say whatever you want. It's not like unethical, but then people learn what the protagonists learn. And we actually have tropes and urban legends that came from fictional narratives that people read. And then their brain said, well, that must be true. Why? Because they're cognitive defense mechanisms were disengaged by the story so in that way number one we can both learn a lot from fictional narratives and number two we also have to be careful to identify those learning moments so we don't take away the wrong lesson from a a fictional narrative especially a common example would be things involving you know science or history um you know you might a lot of fiction books are set in in reality like fictional settings where you know there they have we have the same presidents or we have the same line of kings or something in in the old world, uh, but then in some critical way the world would be different and they'll talk about that in the story. But then people who don't have a deep knowledge of history, this fictional history becomes their actual history. Uh, but it, it has to do with the way that I, I've I've said a few times. Um, That storytelling is actually, I think, the most powerful human technology ever made because of its extremely unique potential to shape our thoughts and our responses. In fact, another study showed it was related about smoking cessation, and they found that um, if you told people the facts, the information about what smoking does to your body, uh, that was less persuasive in getting people to change than if you told people a story about a child who lost a family member to lung cancer. Um, And even they've done other studies where they would tell people the facts of what a charity did. And then another story, they they told a story about how someone's life was impacted. And they actually took blood samples before and after. And in the second group, not only did the people who heard a story have a much higher likelihood to give money to that charity, they also had higher levels of levels of oxytocin in their bloodstream because their bodies actually reacted to the story in a way that uh, they did not to the information.
0: Wow. Is that kind of is that similar to getting chills if you're reading a book or watching a movie where your body has a, a, a actual reaction to I know this is getting off topic a little bit from books but when when we're reading something that really it resonates with us and it and it gives us a bodily reaction. Our brains what is make that?
1: the stories real. So wow. our brains are why do I say this? Our brains are map making systems. Mm. So what we see and hear and taste isn't reality. It's our brain trying to make of an understandable model of reality we can interact with. If we saw the world as it was, it'd be wildly overwhelming. I mean, it's what's around us is an unknowable number, or not unknowable, an unfathomable number of subatomic particles, many of which are in superposition. We can't, like, do anything meaningful of that. We wouldn't know the boundary <laughs> of what was us versus the environment. So our brains and our senses simplify that into something that we can understand and that neural hardware that derives that from our senses can also employ that same hardware in our imaginations and so when we get engaged with a story someone guides our imagination our visualization process but when you we've seen this very clearly in brain imaging studies when we imagine things If you imagine an elephant, similar things happen in your brain to when you actually see an elephant. So we Mm. have genuine sensory and emotional and physiological responses to imagined stimuli because of the power of our brains.
0: Wow. And on that note. It's time to keep the lights on, Mike.
1: Man, that went fast. I like, know. Like 5 minutes.
0: I know it's been, it's been pumping. It's this it's this, the magic of storytelling, Mike.
1: I love a good book. Okay, see y'all in a second. We're so glad that you join us on the Cozy Robot Show, and we'd love it if you joined us in our private Discord community. You know, it has been so fun watching this program kind of find its groove. Uh, You may not know this, but we're regularly charting on Apple Podcasts in the science category. We're growing in listeners all the time, and our private Discord is taking off as well. Gosh, we've had so many people join recently, which is delightful. I so love spending time with all of you every week. Number one, we have an after party we enjoy every week where everyone loses to Stephanie Tate in Jackbox games. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, trust me. And uh, we also play video games together. Uh, we get together and we discuss different topics. And we have a book club, and it's wonderful. In fact, we have such a big book club and so many people participating that we're adding multiple meetings every week to accommodate time zones all across the world. So uh, some books we're going to be going through in the near future. The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates. We're going through The Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd. We're going through, and I'm really excited about this one, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmer. And we'll be doing uh, my friend Richard Rohr's Eager to Love uh, in the near future. And uh, we're going to read the new book coming out by N.K. Jemisin in June. I mean, it's just a delightful experience. And we'd love for you to join us. And the way you do that is you go to CozyRobots.com. And you sign up to support the program with literally any uh, amount that works for your budget. And once you do, you're invited into our Discord community, and it is wonderful. It's all the good things about the internet without the bad stuff. There's no trolling. There's no people questioning the validity of other people's identities or experiences. Instead, we talk about things we're passionate about, interests we share in a way that is supportive and empathetic exactly as you would expect from all the cozy robots worldwide. So, you know, this show is made by a team and that team needs your help, right? So you can help by becoming a cozy robot. Just go to cozyrobots.com to learn how you can do that. I'd also love to tell you about my friends over at KiwiCo. KiwiCo is defining the future of play by making it engaging, enriching and seriously fun. They create hands-on projects designed to expose kids to concepts in science, technology, engineering, art, and math, which you may have heard abbreviated as STEAM. They're based in Mountain View, California, and their mission is to help kids build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills while having a blast doing it. The way it works when you sign up for KiwiCo is they start sending you a box, which they call a crate, every month. It's been designed by expert and tested by kids and comes with All the supplies you need to do that month's project, which means no extra runs to the store uh, or ordering from e-commerce sites. They include kid-friendly instructions and an enriching magazine filled with content to learn even more about that crate's unique theme. I absolutely adore KiwiCo. Not only has every member of my family, adults, teens alike, enjoyed KiwiCo, but people who listen and watch this program send me pictures all the time of their family enjoying these products. Kids and adults love getting Kiwi crates in the mail, and they have lines centered around different interest areas and different levels of age appropriateness all the way down to children as young as six months and as old as 108. So with KiwiCo's hands-on art and science projects, kids can engineer a hydraulic claw, build an animation machine, explore colorful, kid-friendly chemistry, and more. It's all you need to make Steam seriously fun, delivered right to your doorstep. So you can get 30% off your first month free, plus free shipping. On any crate line by using the code the code cozy robots that's thirty percent off your first month plus free shipping. Go to k i w i c o and use promo code cozy robots.
0: The cozy robot show.
1: And I thought it'd be really fun to play the title theme instead of the transition theme because <laughs> that's what I do.
0: I mean, listen, people in the comments have literally been saying that they really, they really enjoyed the song. I enjoy the song. Uh, Allison says, I love the little cozy robot jingle. So
1: if, if you don't stick around for the credits at the end, then I'll tell you right now. I love that theme as well because it was written and recorded by my daughters, Madison and Macy mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. And it makes it all the more special because of it um mike here's a kind of a heavy hitter mr jason w davis on instagram asks is there such a thing as a must read
1: absolutely yeah i'm Uh, surprised
0: by that answer mike
1: here's the thing here's why i love books i can't believe they're affordable (laughs)
0: Because
1: for you to get a book, someone has given you the best thinking that they're capable of that took months, years, or decades of their life to assemble. And you can learn everything they learned without having to spend months or years or decades. It is a true Miracle, an amplifier of the potential of the human brain. I mean, I would never be able to learn so much about cosmology on my own as I get in Brian Green's The Fabric of the Cosmos. If you are into cosmology and interested in how everything can continue to be, I would call this book a must-read But what is even more remarkable than learning about new avenues of physics or science in my mind is learning about the lives and perspectives of people different than us. For most of my life, I was an avid reader of books written by white, straight, Christian men who grew up in the United States of America. And I'm glad I read all those books. Truly, I learned so many things from people like me. But I think for people like me, it is radically important to start learning about the lives and experiences and insights of people not like us. So I think Native by my friend Caitlin Curtis is a must read for every person. I think that uh, I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by my friend Austin Channing Brown is a must-read book. Um, And I think we should invest our time and our energy in not only learning things that would take us a long time to learn, but in many cases, that would be impossible for us to learn as a white Man living in America, I have no way to understand what it's like to be black in America. I suppose I could bother my friends of color, my black friends, to like exhaustively tell me about their lived experience, turning their lives into museum exhibits that center my own needs. Well, that doesn't feel like friendship to me. Mm. So, in the meantime, Black writers with incredible talent and true mastery over the art of writing have documented their experiences and compelling arguments for other ways the world could be. Those those books are must-read to me. Uh, And the same is true when we talk about the kind of liberation theology, if you identify as a Christian or even if you don't. If you don't like the way that European Christianity and American Christianity have shaped the world, you owe it to yourself to see what Latin American scholars and Central American and South American uh, theologians have done to recontextualize faith and liberation theology. Those are must-reads. The problem is I can't tell you a must-read book because what is must-read is different for every person. To know what you must read, you must cultivate a sense of self-awareness. You must learn where your blind spots are in the world. And then invite through the miracle of books, perspectives you would otherwise never have access to. Sit with them, contemplate them, and be changed by them. Because not only will you see the world... More clearly and with more fidelity, you will know how to live and move in the world in a way that not only allows you access to deeper levels of friendship and relationship with other people, but also makes you safer for other people to be in relationship with.
0: Mm. Mike, do you, do you like books? <laughs>
1: <laughs> they are my absolute favorite thing humanity has ever produced.
0: Now, um, speaking of favorite hobbies, reading as something that is... so not only enjoyable but so important Um, sometimes it can be really hard to get into a book I know uh, this next question really resonates with me because I actually really struggle with sitting down and focusing um, and really letting myself fall into a story I used to not have that issue when I was younger but as I've gotten older I do and this question really resonates with me because of that so at Rachel Marquez 20 on twitter asks reading is one of my favorite hobbies and as a kid i devoured books now i'm lucky if i get through one a month even with reading a little every day and only reading books i actually want to read how can i revive the passion and attention span i used to have for reading
1: what in the world oh my gosh i i stopped the show Just hit pause. Pause. Because the the level of self judgment in that question, it is, uh, oh, it breaks my heart. Mm. I just heard a person say, I read every day a book a month. Do you know where that puts you compared to if, if you're in the United States compared to most people? Most people do not read a book a month, most people don't read a book a year. And reading books you enjoy, what other (coughs) kinds of books would you read? (laughs) Right, right. So I'd like to start by saying your passion for reading is just fine. Now, if you are wanting for whatever reason and any reason is valid to read more, that's fine. But I would also invite you immediately to pause and say, why do I feel like I am not doing Or reading enough. Listen to me. I would usually read six to eight books a month. Every month. Since high school. Six to eight books a month. Almost like clockwork. And then we got into a pandemic and lockdown. And I didn't have the energy to read. At all. Mm. I'd try to read. And it just... Books are work. Even even an easy read is going to require access to your feelings. It's going to require access to your attention. I just couldn't do it. First time in my life, I started binging on Netflix, just watching shows. Started my video game. Video gaming really, really picked up. And did I feel guilty? Not at all, because I was doing everything I could do to survive an impossibly difficult era. It's okay for the amount that we read to ebb and flow, to wax and to wane. And that's just fine. It's good to be aware of what's happening. And I would say if you love reading and you find yourself not wanting to read, instead of making yourself read or strategizing why you should be reading and coming up with plans to make yourself read more, Maybe a more fruitful and productive avenue of inquiry is to look inside and say, how am I doing? What am I afraid of that I'm not able to admit to myself? What am I sad about that I'm not giving myself the space to feel sad about? What am I angry about that I'm not letting loose? Mm. What feelings am I holding back? What stressors are in my life? What difficult circumstances could I be facing? And how could I be more supportive for myself? If I, inst- if I was my best friend instead of me, how would I be there for my best friend mm. and then be there that way for yourself? And I would imagine that no one listening right now to my voice and no one watching what I'm saying Well, none of you would hear a friend say, I'm only reading a book a month and I need to read more. And you in response would say, well, you lazy, good for nothing, worthless person get to work. (laughs) (laughs) You'd say, well, why do you want to read more? Mm -hmm. Is everything okay? Is there something I can do to help you? Is there something I can do to support you? That's what you would say to a friend. And so I'd invite you to say that to yourself. I did this last year, and what do you know? I'm learning to process my feelings. The work I've been doing for so long in therapy is paying off. And what do I find? I'm starting to read again, I'm starting to read a lot. Book club is helping, but mm-hmm. I'm reading more than just book club books because. I took the time to take care of myself, to realize that when I read, it is in service of my needs, that books are here for me. I'm not here for books.
0: Wow. I've never thought about it that way. And I really, you know, like I was saying before I read the question, I I resonate with that because I think to myself, oh, I should be reading more. But if I were thinking as my best friend, like in a a best friend way, I wouldn't be so harsh on myself, especially this person who wrote in who's, who's actually doing the thing. Um, and, uh, Yeah. Okay. Very helpful. Thank you, Mike. Um, Bob has a fantastic question. Sent it in just now live from Facebook. Bob says, dialoguing with others around... Let me just share this so that we can all see. Um, Fancy. Dialoguing with others around books from diverse voices has been one of my favorite ways to read. How do you find or start a book discussion group? Are there good rules for engagement that allow open dialogue but is safe
1: oh wow gosh yeah a- Bob, that that's a gold star question it is um I'll admit I don't know how to start book or discussion groups uh I have an completely unfair advantage I am uh a, a, a mid-tier author with a couple books that have uh, been bestsellers in their categories. And, uh, in the last, I don't know how many years coming up on 10 years, I don't know how many millions of people have listened to me talk on a podcast, but it's a lot. So when I want to start a book group, it's pretty easy to get enough (laughs) people to show up. And so I just want to admit that when that wasn't true of me, I was terrible at starting book groups and I tried all the time. So, uh, I just like to admit um, what I know and what I don't know. And I don't know how to get people interested in a book group. Now, facilitating a book group. um, And I I like to think in terms of facilitating, not leading. I don't like to lead book groups, but I I do enjoy facilitating them. Um, I pay attention to, as I read, when I had moments that I was really challenged by a book when I had a feeling when I learned something new and I jot them down and I'll just kind of raise what was happening in a, a, a fiction book or a non-fiction book and I'll ask other people what did you feel when you were introduced to this idea what did you think what did you wish that the author had said was there anything the author said that you think or wish they wouldn't have said. We just kind of invite that kind of open participation in a text. And then when you talk about, you know, diversity or inclusion or or intersectionality, um, I think it's really important, one, that people are allowed to be curious and allowed to ask questions, and that we admit that sometimes people don't know things, you know. Um, if you go back and listen to some of my earliest public advocacy on matters, of uh, gender and sexuality, I would conflate gender and sexuality as I was trying to lead public discussions on those matters. And it wasn't because I didn't care. It wasn't because I hadn't done my homework. It's because those ideas were so new to me. I was still parsing out the basics. And for someone who was not straight or not cisgendered, my conflation of gender and sexuality could be really hurtful and even harmful so both of these things are true at once we want people to learn more that's what we're asking people to do and we want the people who are impacted by society's ignorance on matters of marginalization to not be harmed further so i try to foster a space where it's you can air on the side of expressing your curiosity if you're also willing to err on the side of offering reparation for harm that you've done. Right? So when I have a book club and we're talking about race or gender, or if we have men and women in a group together and we are discussing issues that impact women more than men, it's okay to have questions. And if you step in it, mm. you say you're sorry. Sorry. You don't get defensive. You don't talk about your intent. We focus on the impact of the words. And Mm -hmm. I have found that when that happens, things actually do work out just fine. But you have to set that expectation up front. The expectation that in this space, we are going to accept that people's experiences are people's experiences. So you might not understand what it means to be non-binary or trans, and that's okay, you don't have to. But you don't get to question the validity of the fact that people are non-binary or trans. You might think that defund the police is a terrible slogan, but the people who've been victims of police violence get to share that they've had those experiences and we're not going to question the validity of those experiences. And uh, you have to be really proactive about setting and holding those boundaries, communicating them up front and holding people to them. And uh, in my experience from there, things go pretty well.
0: Bob, fantastic question. That was amazing.
1: Yeah, really, really good question. Question, A question more people should be asking. Again, Gold Star, Bob.
0: Here's a question that I've always kind of wondered about. So another Mike on Discord asked, and I believe this other Mike is here tonight. Um, As
1: in the Cozy Robot Discord.
0: Yes, the Cozy Robot okay, Discord. Right on. Um, asks, did the burning of the library at Alexandria really set us back a thousand years?
1: Hmm. <laughs> hmm. The specificity of the question. <laughs> I don't think that's answerable. I think a historian could give a better More granted answer about why that's unanswerable? Books are incredible. I think we've spent a whole episode talking about the miracle I see as our ability to teleport our thoughts out of our heads and onto a media where as many people who read that media suddenly know our thoughts. Pretty amazing. And when the only copy of a book is lost, something something serious is lost indeed. But books don't exist in a vacuum. For, I think, to get set back a thousand years, everyone who'd ever read anything in the Library of Alexandria, and every person who'd been impacted by that person, would also have to have been lost. Um. There's a wonderful notion called the extended mind theorem. It's the idea that our brains are so flexible that they can even learn when they don't need to know something. So when you learn to read or write, your brain realizes, I don't need to remember that fact. I need to remember where I put it or where I found it. So I have notebooks. And I remember, I might not remember what I wrote in the notebook, but I remember that I wrote that in that notebook, and I can go to that notebook and find it. And I can remember what book on a shelf, if I need to get a deeper understanding of something I have in the moment, I can go to and get that understanding. And my brain has even learned, as so many of our brains have learned, that a lot of things are just uh, milliseconds away in a search engine. So there's no point committing them to memory. And... Libraries are kind of a shared extended mind theorem. But when you sort of look at the aggregate of the understanding of everyone who's visited a library, you get kind of a low resolution copy of most of what's in there in the first place. So human knowledge was certainly set back when that historic world wonder was lost. But I doubt seriously that a thousand years of societal, social or technological process, progress was lost because the people persisted. And um, I don't know, I think if we lost the Library of Congress today and most of the books in it were the only copy, um, it would be a grievous loss especially to the arts. But I think you'd be surprised how quickly uh, we could reassemble the most essential of that knowledge that allowed us to continue on into an unknown future.
0: What a positive way to end tonight's episode, Mike. We have reached the end of this episode of The Cozy Robot Show.
1: Well, Grace, it was so good to have you back. I... um enjoy the show approximately a billion times more <laughs> when you're here than when you're not and I just I just really appreciate uh being with you every week like this and all of yeah. you watching thank you for being here
0: yes. All of you listening
1: later on thank you uh it's been really fun to see the cozy robot show grow and change and become its own thing and I love the community that's forming around it and I uh want you to know that this program is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank each and every Cozy Robot. Yeah. They make the show possible. I'd like to thank our show's producers, Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. The Cozy Robot theme song and transition music was written and recorded by Madison and Macy McCarg. Production support by Amy Hill, social media management and program co-host Grace Vaughn. Designed by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design, Landon Satterfield. Set design by Jesse Lane Interiors. Wardrobe stylist. <laughs> That's funny. Ginny <laughs> picks up my clothes. It's accurate. And craft services. Ginny <laughs> McCarg. Everybody, thank you so much for joining us. And we simply cannot wait to see you again next week.
0: Bye, everybody. The Cozy Robot Show.